Hello and welcome to Trails Worth Hiking, the show that brings you some of the most interesting backpacking and trekking routes in the world. I'm your host, Jeremy Pendry. In the first part of the show, we bring you the story and history of a trail. Then we tell you what it's like to hike the trail and how you can do it. On this episode, we go to the edge of one of the greatest empires in history, Rome. As Rome's empire grew, it expanded beyond the Mediterranean region. And by the end of the first century AD, the empire had conquered a considerable portion of what is today Great Britain, but not all of it. Those pesky tribes that lived in the northern part of the island in what is today Scotland were never subdued by the Romans. Eventually, in the early 2nd century AD, the emperor Hadrian acknowledged that reality by building a wall all the way across Britain, a wall that marked the farthest reach of the Roman Empire. Today, trekkers can hike the length of the ruins of that wall and take in almost 2,000 years of history that it has to offer. On this episode of Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Hadrian's Wall path through the countryside of northern England. Welcome to the show. On this episode, we have Jack Witt as a guest. Jack has a company called Active World Journeys, where he guides people on active hiking vacations and places all over the world. He takes small groups of clients and leads them on some pretty fantastic trips. A few years ago, he led a trip on the Hadrian's Wall Path. So you guys know that I love hiking and I love history. And this trail allows trekkers to have both of those things. So let's get right into it. In 55 BC, Julius Caesar crossed the British Channel from Gaul in Rome's first attempt to invade Great Britain. And that invasion was unsuccessful. But the next year, 54 BC, he tried again. This time, Caesar brought five legions plus 2,000 cavalry. And some of the, the smaller kingdoms he came up against in the southern part of the island uh, did surrender to him, and tribute was negotiated, and then the Romans left. So the result was they ended up with some essentially puppet kings and some client states and to help establish trade, but it was nowhere near a real conquering of the island. And then not much happened for quite a while, until we get to 43 AD, almost 90 years later, under the emperor Claudius, Aulus Plautius led an invasion across the channel from Gaul. And the, the goal of this invasion was ostensibly to reinstall a king named Verica. He was the king of Atrabates, and Claudius himself came to accept the surrender of 11 tribes of southeastern Britain. And this was the first time that the Romans really got a a foothold in Great Britain. In 78 AD, so now 25 years later, Agricola defeats Wales, and Rome has taken a bigger portion of Great Britain. In 84, 
They established control over much of Scotland except the highlands in the far north of the island. But then that control began to erode, and there was some withdrawal. And by 87, they were at the Stanegate Line, which is between Carlisle and Corbridge. And so they've made their way into what is the north of today's England, near the border with Scotland. And they've made inroads into Scotland, but they haven't conquered Scotland. And in fact, they've been pushed back. Emperor Hadrian begins his reign in 117 AD. And there was some further withdrawal at that point. And then by 122 AD, the emperor decided to build a wall. It's not clear exactly why the wall was built, but possibly it was a policy of defense before expansion, trying to shore up what they had already conquered before moving on, before trying to conquer more land. Construction began in 122 AD and took six years for the wall to be built. Hadrian himself actually came to see the construction. This was unusual. But Hadrian was not a typical emperor. He was a new breed. Emperor Hadrian had been born and raised in what is today Seville, Spain, and began his life, therefore, outside of Rome. And even as emperor, he traveled extensively. He spent more than half of his 21-year reign outside of what is today Italy. That was more than almost any emperor up to that time. And this was something that many in Rome didn't like. They thought that he was neglecting his duties, but he visited almost every province of the empire. I guess if you think of it from a foreign policy or foreign relations perspective, maybe he was doing his duties quite well because he was actually seeing on the ground what was happening throughout the empire. Hadrian was known for overseeing lots of ambitious building projects in Rome in an effort to make it a cultural capital. He admired Greek society and culture, and and he wanted Rome to aspire to that. He actually wore a beard because of his love of the Greeks, which was new for a Roman emperor. But many after him followed suit, so he was a trendsetter in that regard. And for someone like me, who has had a beard for quite a while, I admire that too. So in 122 AD, there was Hadrian, the emperor himself, in Britannia to see the beginning of construction of this wall. He never made it back to see the completion of the wall that bears his name, though he reigned until 138 AD, which was years after it had been finished. He died at age 62 in 138 AD after some years of chronic illness. And as I mentioned before, he had a 21-year reign, which is a pretty long reign in the annals of Roman emperors. He had an unhappy and childless marriage and adopted Antoninus, who will come back and figure into our story shortly, and Antoninus became the next emperor. Some historians really admire Hadrian as one of Rome's most effective emperors, though, as I mentioned, many in Rome didn't think so. The Senate was pretty critical of his approach at the time and found him remote and authoritarian. Although he had to build a wall to maintain the border of the Roman Empire, his reign was relatively peaceful by the standards of the time. So let's talk a little bit about the wall. The wall is slightly north of and paralleled by the previous Stangate line. It's 80 Roman miles across, which is 117 and a half kilometers, 
or 73 miles. The route goes west from Sejadunum. Did I say that right? I have no idea. At Wall's End on the River Tyne to the shore of Solway Firth. The construction started in the east and went west, and there were small forts built roughly every Roman mile, and turrets were built for observation and signaling. In addition, there were 14 to 17 full-size forts along the route where Roman legions could be stationed. And this was not just a wall. If you go there today and hike the route, you'll see remnants of the wall, but this at the time was much more than just a wall. There was a row of forts five to ten miles north of the walls. So if you were going to invade the Roman-held Britannia from the north, the first thing you encountered wasn't the wall, it was actually these other forts. How would you like to be those guys? Out beyond the wall in hostile territory, just waiting for some northern tribe to strike in the middle of the night. When you got to where the wall was, you didn't reach the wall just yet. There was an upslope in front of a deep ditch. So you basically had to climb a berm, which I would imagine would expose you to whoever was watching from the wall. And then you dropped into a ditch, all before you even reached the wall. The wall was constructed of different kinds of materials at different spots. It was more broad or more narrow at different spots. And it was more than eight feet thick in most places and about 12 feet of height, which is about almost four meters. Some sections on the western side of the wall were actually built out of turf. Apparently there wasn't enough stone over there to build the wall. And it's believed that the wall uh, was covered in plaster and whitewashed, which would have made it visible for miles, if you can imagine that. It would have been a sparkling white that anyone approaching would have seen from a long way off. Now we come back to Hadrian's adopted son, Antoninus. So Antoninus Pius became the next emperor after Hadrian, and he actually built a new wall, 160 kilometers or 100 miles to the north of Hadrian's wall. So the Romans did make an attempt to push even further north and to try to hold it. And that was a turf wall, so basically made out of earth. This turf wall was 61 kilometers across, which is 38 miles. It's at an even narrower portion of Great Britain. But Antoninus was unable to conquer the northern tribes. And after Antoninus, in the time of Emperor Marcus Aurelius, the northern front of the Roman Empire was moved back to Hadrian's Wall, and the Antonine Wall was abandoned. So this lasted in this state from the early 100s all the way until the 400s. By 400, Rome was in decline, and Britain was abandoned by Rome. And the wall also fell into decline, and some of the stones were repurposed by Britons to build other things. And I would imagine for a long time, Hadrian's Wall was simply forgotten, and stones may have been used for local construction. In fact, in the 18th century, long sections of the wall were used for road building. There's the military road, which was built for the Jacobite insurrection. This was in 1745, where there was a fight for the British throne with the help of some Scots, and it was a rebellion that ultimately failed. But a lot of 
chunks of the wall were were taken down and used to build a military road. More recently, a man named John Clayton of Newcastle put a lot of work into restoring sections of the wall, and he was an amateur, not an archaeologist or a scientist or anything like that. But he started to see some success, and people recognized what he was doing. And then the National Trust began acquiring portions of it. In 1987, the wall was made a World Heritage Site. And then finally, in 2003, the Hadrian's Wall Path came into existence. So I hope you find that history of the wall interesting. And so now let's talk to Jack Witt about his trip along the Hadrian's Wall Path. All right, I have with me Jack Witt. Jack is a longtime fitness and wellness coach. He has a master's degree in exercise science, and he's also a certified personal trainer and behavioral analyst. Jack is based in LA. He has a business called Get Fit with Wit, where he provides fitness and wellness coaching. He's also the author of several fitness, wellness, and lifestyle books. But what I think is most interesting uh, to me is that he also has a business that is kind of a sister business to his fitness and wellness business, which is called Active World Journeys. And that business allows him to take small groups on active vacations and really cool places around the world. Uh, Jack Witt, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks so much. Glad to be here. So, Jack, tell us a little bit about Active World Journeys. It sort of just came about uh, w- without any planning. Uh, I had started my fitness business back in uh, maybe around 2004 or so, and uh, a lot of my clients were asking me to take them on you know, local hikes, and then that turned into like weekend hikes, and then that turned into regional hiking weekend trips, and then United States National Parks, and then they asked me to take them to uh, down to Costa Rica, and so that's really started the whole concept of like sort of the adventure travel, active travel thing, and it just uh, blossomed without me even really for <laughs> trying, <laughs> and uh, you know, before I knew it, I was taking groups all over the world on crazy, exciting adventures. And they kept, you know, inviting their friends and their coworkers and family. And so it just kind of, you know, organically grew. And I love it. It's really neat to hear that because it's one of those things that's, that's sort of been my story, but I've never been smart enough to turn it into a business. Um, I've always had people who have liked the fact that I'm into outdoor trips and they say, Hey, you know, if you're going sometime, ask me to go. And I've ended up taking four or five people at a time on these trips, but I'm always doing it just because I enjoy planning it. I I probably should have thought to have turned it into a business. It's and I tell you, I just I absolutely love it. I really I didn't realize I had such a passion for it. I have a passion for creating these sort of handcrafted programs and just you know about bringing people to UNESCO World Heritage sites around the world. And it really turns into sort of a you know a groups of like-minded, fun people, and they become friends. And uh, it, it's been really great. How did you first get into doing these outdoor trips before it was a business and it was just you doing them for fun? Just uh, sort of naturally progressed from maybe some local hikes and day hikes in LA. I thought, yeah, sure, I'll you know take take a Saturday and and my, take my clients hiking. It's you know good for them. Yeah, if they want to bring a friend, that's great. And you know who knows, maybe that friend will end up training with me. I thought it could be a good feeder system in the fitness training you know business that I had. And then you know some overnight weekend stuff. And I really just started enjoying calling lodges and campsites and talking and, and, and trying to figure out what the best place for my group to stay would be and uh, where could we have our meals. And it just really turned this awesome, awesome little side thing. 
So you mentioned Costa Rica, and we're here today to talk about a trip in Northern England. You know, how did you start figuring out what kinds of trips to do and where to go in the world? After a while, I did start to do some surveys. <laughs> I started using SurveyMonkey. I better find out where they want to go. I'm just kind of picking things around the world that I want to do, you know, <laughs> and seeing, seeing who will go with me. But then I did some surveys and found out uh, some places that people want to go. And, you know, Hadrian's Wall is a, a fairly popular destination for adventure travel, you know, companies and, and groups. So I did that, I guess it was summer of 2018. And so by the survey, I had enough people that would want to do it. So I started to putting it together. And so who typically goes on these trips with you? Yeah, my, uh, my clientele for my hiking trips, you know, gosh, I say clientele, but they all, they all just become my friends. So it's just this, this crazy sort of boundary that I cross a little bit because they go on a lot of trips with me. Some of them have been my clients. Typically, I get about 75% women from the ages like 40 to 70 really ended up being my demographic, if you will, on that. And that's another thing that wasn't planned. <laughs> I did not plan that at all. But I do find now after doing several of these worldwide adventure tours that, I, you know, women are more adventurous. And a, a lot of them, their husbands will say, just go, go do your thing. You know, <laughs> I'm going to stay home and uh, you want to, you know, hike around uh, Machu Picchu or go for it. Go. <laughs> That's great. That's great to hear. So I, I, it was great to see when looking at your website that you've got trips planned for 2021. And I know we're all kind of playing it by ear as we, this pandemic looks like it's coming to a point where maybe we'll get past it, but we don't really know. And so what does that look like for you for 2021? Yes, uh, I wanted to be ready in case we are, as a, as a whole country, ready to travel again. And um, I'm a, the eternal optimist, so I have some programs in place uh, starting in, the, uh, in late uh, spring and summer. And we'll just play it by ear. Right now, I'm doing like really, 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 really flexible cancel schedules just in case, refund schedules. So uh, it's, it's, it'll be kind of easing into it and seeing if we can do a, two, uh, a small tour in May or June or July and, and hopefully a couple more throughout the end of the year. And so what are, what are a few of the trips you have on tap for 2021? Yes. Uh, so I have a Badlands a National Park and Black Hills. Uh, this will be probably just like a four or five day program. So we're going to hike around beautiful Badlands National Park a little bit. And this is in South Dakota, and then head over towards uh, the Black Hills, which is a totally different look and feel, and do a little hiking there. We'll see the uh, the uh, very famous is it Mount Rushmore? Rushmore? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also uh, the Crazy Horse Monument, mm -hmm. which is another phenomenal monument over there. I believe that may be the largest stone monument in the United States. It's but it's 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 quite impressive. I think the last time I saw it, the only time I saw it, I was nine or ten years old, if that. And so at the time it wasn't finished or it wasn't even close to finished. I wonder, is it done? It still isn't done. <laughs> they, they've been working on that for a very, very, very long time, very slowly. Obviously the funding uh, for, uh, for their nation is, it's, you know, it's hard to come by, but something that had, I believe it did start way back in the forties or fifties and it's still continuing on today, but still really impressive. And I was just talking today, the, it looks like out in Catalina Island, the campsites are going to try to reopen in February, March. So there's actually a, a four-day Trans-Catalina trekking trail you can do. And then uh, they'll pitch the tents for you and cook for you along the way. So uh, I'm going to schedule that, it looks like now, for June. 
And in July, call me crazy, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to do the Rim to Rim Grand Canyon a small group tour. Got a couple nights with some hotel rooms at, at the uh, historic uh, Phantom Ranch down on the canyon floor. So we'll do the Rim to Rim, but also relax down there in between the uh, descent from the North Rim to the floor. We'll spend the night and spend a whole day relaxing at Phantom Ranch and then a hike back up uh, over into the uh, up the uh, south rim there. But that's a very early starts, 4 a.m. starts because of the heat. So we want to be done by 10 uh, or so each day to avoid that real excessive heat. Cool. So that's that's really neat to hear. And what about international stuff? And then international. Uh, so I think uh, all bets are on uh, in October. <laughs> okay. I, I feel good. I feel good. I think it's going to happen. I've got a South Africa safari group tour scheduled. It'll still be considered mildly a small group tour, but I think it'll be uh, maxed out at 15 people. And so we'll be uh, down near Kruger uh, National Park on safari, and then we'll do Victoria Falls and uh, the Devil's Pool, which I don't know if you've heard of, but that's that no. infamous in- Instagram shot you see people where they look like they're right at the edge of the falls and they're going to fall oh, out. Okay. Somehow, they, somehow they don't, but that's kind of a thing there in South Africa. So I'm really looking forward to that one. And with a, with a little luck, it will be, uh, we'll be back into international travel and uh, back to somewhat normal, hopefully, by, by the fall. All right. Well, let's turn now to Hadrian's Wall Path. How did you first hear about this hike and think about doing it? Yeah, I, um, I had seen a lot of it just on the Internet. With, you know, sometimes I kind of scour some other adventure <laughs> travel companies and see what they're doing. But uh, um, Hadrian's Wall has always been a pretty fairly popular, consistent sort of multi-day trekking program that hikers like to do. And I just found it fascinating. I'm kind of a history geek, too. And so really combining the history of Hadrian's Wall with the hiking portion, too, and then also just the beauty of that area, it was just a perfect scenario. I thought it had to be the history as a big part of it, because there's a ton of national trails in England. There's a lot of really interesting national trails. But that one has always attracted me. And the reason I wanted to do an episode on it is because you can't really get any more rich in history than, you know, directly along the frontier of the Roman Empire, which I think is kind of cool. Yes, yes. I mean, amazing. This was Rome's farthest outpost up there in northern England, right, almost right up there by the Scottish border. And I think it took something like 50,000 men about five or six years to build this this wall for Emperor Hadrian. And so who, do, who went with you on this trip? You know, I'm not asking for names, but just generally, uh, <laughs> what kind of uh, group did you put together for this? Uh, it was a group. We were all very loyal to the Roman Empire. We didn't want any trouble. No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there were six of us, and it was me and five uh, women. And we uh, were age ranges from about 45 to, and I even had a 74-year-old uh, a woman on the trip and she did great. She used That's to be awesome. uh, a mar- she used to be a marathon runner. And so this was kind of her, her way of sort of just kept proving herself that she could do still do some stuff. And uh, she just did a great job. So let's talk a little bit about what the logistics are for this hike. First of all, I'm guessing this is pretty much a summer hike. Is it, or is it year round or shoulder seasons too, or what's the time of year that's best to do this? I think mainly summer. Yeah, it's even this, uh, up in northern England there. The summers are fairly cool, mild, I would say. So it's probably some shoulder season hiking, too. We did it in June, and it was just perfect. It was uh, spectacular. I don't think it got above maybe you know, 78 
on any degrees Fahrenheit on any, any given day. Uh, we were lucky, no rain. Uh, so we had sunny skies and it was just lush, green, green, beautiful undulating hills as far as the eye can see of just beautiful green. As far as preparing though, are you, you got lucky, no rain. That's great. But is this a kind of trip where you kind of have to expect there's going to be rain, there's going to be wind and you just hope that there isn't, but you have to be prepared for that. Yeah, exactly. Right. You definitely want to bring an outer shell, you know, your raincoat, maybe some rain pants perhaps, and uh, just be ready just in case. How long of a hike is this as far as distance and number of days for a typical hike of this one? Yes. So this was, it's an 84 mile hike. The, the classic version, the way a lot of groups break it up the way I did too, it's you do it over six days. So we did it over six days, but in retrospect, I would probably do it the next time I have a group, I would probably turn it into an eight day program because there's some really fantastic museums uh, along the trail that you can visit, mainly uh, obviously geared towards uh, life in Roman Britain and, and life during the Hadrian, the height of the Hadrian's Wall. Uh, under Roman Britain. So you would do that word. Would you do it? So you do a half day here and there, or would it be where you stay in one place for two nights and just spend a day looking at the sites a little bit more? Uh, yes, I would probably, instead of having a different inn every night to stay at along the six day program that we were on, I'd probably pick a, an area where we would do two nights. So we would have more time that next day to just kind of chill a little bit, spend a lot more time at the museum. And maybe just kind of, you know, visit to the local neighborhoods a little bit, the local community. And so you mentioned rolling hills. Is this, what does this hike look like? Is it mostly rolling hills throughout or is it sort of flatter as you're closer to the coast? Yeah, it's flatter as you're uh, closer to the coast. And I do want to point out that the original wall was about 84 miles, but it's just the, 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 the portion now that's intact is going to be more so on your like sort of the end of the second day, the third day and the fourth day of your hike. So the first day you're totally walking. You don't see really any walls. So there are a couple of days on the beginning and on the end where you're walking where the wall was, mm -hmm. but the original wall isn't there. But there's other spectacular things you're going to experience and see walking along where the wall was anyway. You mentioned that uh, rain gear is certainly something you want to have, but are there any other gear issues that people should be aware of and thinking about? We'll talk about this, but I know there's luggage transfer available, so you don't you're not carrying a backpacking pack, just a day pack, right? Just a day pack, uh huh. Um, and you know, with in terms of uh, hiking poles, it's a lot of times it's sort of a personal choice. So for me, I didn't use hiking poles on this one. I had a couple people in the group that did, a couple few, but maybe one or two persons have decided not to. So it's doable without. But, you know, it's again, that's a personal, real personal choice. What about the availability of water along the way? Is it pretty much getting it at the inns or the towns or is there other water sources or how does that work? Yeah, mainly just having enough when you leave the towns and the inns. For the most part, there's plenty of little towns along the way where you'll be able to get, you know, good drinking water. So you never have to worry about where am I going to get my water? Do I have to, you know, bring any type of, um, you know, tablets or anything like that? And what about navigation? I know that, you know, there's a wall there for part of it. So you've got that. But <laughs> but beyond that, I assume that is there a map that's pretty commonly used or a guidebook that people typically use for this trip? Yeah, I, th I did a lot of research on it. And the go to guidebook, uh, and that is the one that I purchased and bought, is Rucksack Readers Hadrian's Wall Path. I liked it. It was it was even kind of like waterproof. So if it did rain, it was sort of each page was sort of a maybe encased in a little plastic. So it just had, it was all color. It had good 
maps, uh, pretty good step-by-step -step instructions on it. And you could get that Rucksack Reader's book along with all kinds of other Hadrian's Wall maps and things at the, um, at the National Trail website for England, and that's nationaltrail.co.uk. Okay, great. And what about signage along the route? A lot of these national trails have some sort of blaze system where it's particular colors every so often or a particular symbol. And was there something like that where you know, okay, I'm still on the trail? Uh, yeah, they did have signs. I will say it wasn't the best marked trail uh, that I have been on. There were a couple areas where I got a little bit turned around, but we, we uh, managed to get back on track. And those were, I think that was on day one when there wasn't any section of the wall. But there is, it's they're typically they're wooden signs and they have sort of like a little acorn symbol on them. And so, and it'll say Hadrian's Wall Path and have like a little acorn uh, looking symbol. You mentioned something in your blog post uh, on this trip that there uh, was a passport, kind of like a stamp thing that people do for the Camino de Santiago. Is there something like that that people can pick up and sort of get stamped as they go along the way? Right. Yeah. It's kind of like, yeah, it's very similar to the. Pilgrim passport on the Camino de Santiago uh, walking trail in, in Spain. And it's, uh, yeah, you can get the passport and uh, then they also they sell certificates too. However, it's not really like when you do the Camino, there's an, an official office you go into at the end and you, and you get it certified. They don't have that, at least when we did it uh, on the Hadrian's Wall path. Uh, so a little bit on the honor system, but it's what a great souvenir, you know, to have sure. uh, your passport stamped uh, periodically <laughs> along along the way. And they sell those at a lot of the museums uh, that are there uh, along the path. And I actually ordered mine uh, and had it sent to Los Angeles beforehand. And it, that's on a site that still, if you go to that National Trail site that I mentioned, there is a gift shop page and it's trailgiftshop.co.uk. And you can get all kinds of cool Hadrian's Wall stuff, patches and, you know, scarfs and books. And and <laughs> They've got the full swag. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And so getting there, I mean, this, this trip either finishes or starts in Newcastle, right? Depending on which direction you go. Uh, yeah, most people are, uh, most people walk it from west to east because the prevailing winds will be at your back. Okay. That's what we chose. That's what we chose to do. So, uh, yeah, so uh, just uh, to let the uh, audience know, so this is a coast-to-coast -coast hiking program. So it really goes all the way from, you know, one sea to the other sea, all the way across a very thin northern section of, of England. Most people will take the train or fly into Newcastle and then either decide if they're going to walk it from Newcastle all the way west to Bonus on Solway or vice versa. Okay. And so how did you get to bonus on Solway? Was that basically just hire a car or rent, rent something or take a bus or? Yeah, no, I did some research and I vetted uh, a good local uh, transportation company called Bill's Mini Coaches. <laughs> and uh, so he, they came and picked us up in a fairly large white van with our luggage and took a, just drove it. So it was a private transport basically for our group. There is, however, a train that runs from Carlisle out to that area west there. However, or excuse me, from Newcastle out to towards the beginning of the western end of the trail. But it'll only take you as far as Carlisle. And then from Carlisle, it'd be like a 20-minute taxi ride to where the start of the trail. That's a little bit depressing to get out of the car. 
take a taxi and then have to walk back to where you just took the taxi from the next day. Right, right. <laughs> now, I believe there there is also a bus that'll take you from Carlisle to the beginning of the trail. Okay. Section. We talked a little bit earlier that there's a baggage transfer. For people who aren't familiar with that kind of process, uh, explain how that works. That's been the number one coolest thing that through my journey here of being a, you know, a active travel organizer and host is these companies that just specialize in when you have a group doing a multi-day trek where it's sort of an in-to-in or hotel-to-hotel or lodge-to-lodge hike. Uh, that way, you're not schlepping you know, everything you need for that four to six days or eight days or however long you're on the trail. So these companies will specialize in just picking up your bags at hotel number one or from wherever your starting point is, and they'll have the bags at your hotel that night, then they'll pick it up at that hotel the next morning, take it to your next destination, and so on and so on. So you've always got some fresh clothes to change into after your shower. I highly recommend that to people. My family use that on the Tour de Mont Blanc. And mm. with, with two teenage kids, there was a lot less complaining when they didn't have to carry a full pack. So, uh, Yeah, right. It, it's a, it makes a big difference, right? I mean, you know, the difference between carrying a day pack and maybe 10 pounds as opposed to maybe having to have, you know, 30 pounds or so uh, on your back is uh, that clothes gets heavy. <laughs> clothes and shoes that get heavy. And so when you drove out to Bolness on Solway, did you start that day or did you stay out there for a night? Yeah, we started that day. Okay. Uh, so to sort of recap, I had, I actually offered like, I do this also. I offer like usually optional pre and post tours to my main hiking, you know, tours mm-hmm. main, or, or main adventures. And so I offered a London pre-tour for whoever wanted it. And so we uh, we spent three nights in, in London. And so we took a British Airways domestic flight up to uh, Newcastle. But then I had a couple other people from the group traveling straight to Newcastle on their international flights from the States. So we met there in Newcastle. So you went from Newcastle to Bolness on Solway and then hiked that same day. That no same no day accommodations right. the night before in, in Bolness on Solway. That's correct. Yeah, we okay. had a very, very early start. I do recall getting the group up for around 6 a.m. for breakfast, and we wanted to be out the door at 7. I believe it was about an hour and a half drive in our private transportation van out to the trailhead. So I wanted to get the group on the trail by about 9.30 or 10, And which leads me, I did want to mention this, something that's really important on that first day, if you are walking from, from west to east, from Bonasan Solway to Carlisle, say, for your first day, there is a high tide during that section. So you uh, just use a little bit of caution and know the high tide schedule because it will uh, sometimes it could uh, wash out a little part of the trail for maybe a few hours or so. So they usually will post a high tide sign uh, right around the start of the trail. And it's about from what I remember about a two hour, two hours of hiking into that day is where around that high tide area is. However, the audience, if they want to know, they can also check out the UK's hydrographic office uh, website and that's www.ukho.gov.uk slash easy tide. And that'll, it gives like a seven day high tide prediction. So there's no doubt you're definitely starting on the coast here. If you've got to worry about the tide, you're going all the way from one coast to the other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so uh, I wanted to, we weren't going to have any problem if we got that start by about nine thirty mm-hmm. or 10 we could maybe have a problem if we got started a little bit later. So I wanted to get past that point <laughs> before, uh, before. So we just didn't even have to worry about it. 
Are there any permits required to do the hike through the national trail system or is it just show up and start walking? Uh, no permits required. Great. And what about accommodations along this trip? We'll talk about some of the more specifics as we go through the hike, but just in general, you're staying basically in inns and small towns. Is that, you know, or what's the system like? Yeah. So this was, yeah, it's basically, you know, it'll be your typical British inns along the way. They're quaint. They're a lot of them. Uh, what I liked, I always like to, I do admit this after a long day of hiking, I like to have a nice beer. And uh, so most of the places uh, had like uh, breweries attached to them, uh-huh. you know, and so we had some good ales the whole time. And did you book everything in advance or is it, you're not just going to show up with six people? Oh, always book everything. Yes. Yeah, sure. I could just imagine the looks on their faces. <laughs> there was no uh, accommodations. So I definitely book, uh, book in advance. I would say you probably don't have to book way, 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 way advanced like some of these lodges like in our national parks here in America. Some of these lodges can fill up a, you know, a year or two in advance. They're hard to get. But, you know, at least a few months in advance, you want to start uh, making at least some tentative reservations. And are the accommodations in these towns right on the trail or do you have to sort of get to a spot and then, you know, find a ride or take a cab or something like that? Everything was pretty much right off the trail. I don't think we had to deviate more than even a quarter of a mile may have been the the, the, the longest, you know, extra walk that we had to do. But uh, everything's pretty much off the trail. As you're hiking along, are there enough towns where you can have lunch in at Village as you come through it? Or do you basically want to pack a lunch at the beginning of the day and be able to take that with you? There, In general, there are enough little towns that you're going to pass through where you'd be able to find some pubs and, uh, and things to eat in. But you have to be careful because some of them, uh, they don't, you know, let's say if they don't open till noon, you want to plan your your hike, knowing how long it's going to take. You don't want to get there too early. And a lot of them did close maybe around two or three until dinner time. So you also don't want to be behind schedule and then, uh, you know, get there as they're closing. So a little research still on that's going to be a good idea. But for the most part, there's going to be little pubs all throughout the hike, except for one day. And I do want to point that out. And so that for us, when you're walking west to east, on the fourth day, uh, we left a a town called Once Brewed, and we were going to Chollerford. Mm -hmm. That was going to be our hike for the day. So there was no lunch available that day. And so I had the inn that we stayed at and Once Brewed gave us some to-go lunches for that day. I can't believe there's a town named Once Brewed. That is a fantastic name for for a town. <laughs> yeah, it's Once Brewed, and we stayed in, in, we stayed at an inn called the Twice Brewed Inn. So I love that whole perfect words. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about this being sort of English countryside, but for people who haven't been to this part of England or to England at all, what does this area look like? Is it basically like animal pasture, sheep, that kind of thing, or is it just wild? Or or what are we talking about? Yeah, it's it is a lot of like I mentioned before, undulating hills. Uh, you're going through some towns, and uh, a lot of times you're kind of, yeah, we are kind of walking through sort of what seems like somebody's farm even. And I recall there were thousands of sheep everywhere. So if somebody has any sheep phobia, this might not be their uh, trek. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, they're very docile uh, animals, and so we, we looked forward to seeing the sheep every day. So let's talk a little bit about the history. A big part of this trip is to go to see the wall, of course. And so how much of the wall is actually still there? And, and what what was your impression of it? It's amazing. It's amazing. So I don't know the exact mileage of the wall that's still intact. It's going to be basically 
uh, the end of day two, then fully on day three and fully on day four and then half of day five. So I'd say, you know, a little more than half of it, most of it is intact. And it's not real, real high. I think in parts, maybe it was only about 10 feet high at the highest. For me, I like to sort of immerse, try to immerse myself in, in, in history as I'm walking, you know, along these kind of sites. And so for me, just being able to just picture, you know, the Roman soldiers there or the, the life on the wall, what it must have been like. And there is a Roman army museum that's there along the wall. And they have this really cool 20 minute 3D movie about life. Uh, you know, on the wall during the height of Hadrian's Wall. And it was just the coolest way to end our day is going to that movie and, and in 3D and, and watching it. And it, it really, really gave us a sense of, of what it was like back then. Yeah, you sent me a link, I think, to the trailer. And I thought, well, of course, this movie has to be on YouTube somewhere, but it's not. Like, you, you really have to go there to see it. <laughs> you, you actually do have to go there, yes. I understand that some of the, that every mile they built some sort of small fort. They, they called the mile castles, I think, or at least every Roman mile, which I think is different than our mile. But yes. are some of the ruins of these castles and forts along the wall still there as well? Uh, yeah, there's, uh, so yeah, but, uh, so a Roman mile I learned is like 0.92 of our mile. Okay. So they had 80 mile castles along the, the wall and back when it was in service and those are small rectangular forts and numerous observation decks that they had about every third of a mile or so. And they had like 17 large fort, large, large, large forts uh, along this, you know, 84 mile wall. Yes, you can still see the uh, basically sort of like the foundations uh, of all of them, but they're very, very, very well intact and you can definitely see them. And then when you go into a lot of museums, then they'll have like recreation models of what it was, you know, what it actually looked like. And there's been 1900 years of history in England since the wall was built. And some of the other things that are there are actually from later history, right? Like, like Carlisle Castle and some of the churches and things. Are there some of those historical sites that really struck you as interesting as well? Oh, yeah, sure. But you mentioned Carlisle Castle. And I didn't know until, you know, shortly before departing for the trip, doing a little bit more history research. And that's where Mary, Queen of Scots, was imprisoned for 17 years. So, you know, we've got all these Hollywood movies on Mary, Queen of Scots. And that's actually, you know, it's where it all happened right there. She spent the last 17 years of her life there before getting beheaded, I believe. Yeah, not a great end. I, I looked up that castle. It's been there 900 years. So that one's been there a long, long time. Uh, and then there was, there's also St. Oswald's church. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's along the path. It's just a short detour off the Hadrian's wall path. It's a church that's a, really important to early Christianity up in that region, the site of a famous battle in 635 AD. Keeping in mind, Hadrian's wall was built in 122 AD. So there's a battle roughly 500 years later. So that to them is a very you know, important church for early Christianity. And I guess one other thing I noticed was Lanarkost Priory. This is another Christian sort of site, a monastery. Yeah, we you know, we stayed right by that one night was where our accommodations were. And it was the night of the summer solstice. I'll just never forget this. And the sun was still out at like 1030. And it was just, it was sort of like that, you know, the golden hour look right on that priory. It was just beautiful. Just it took a wonderful photo of it. But yeah, that's that was founded in 1169. And it suffered a lot of attacks back in the oh, Anglo-Scottish Wars. 
And it's best known for that's where King Edwards rested for five months in the 1300s before going back out to some battle. Okay. <laughs> and then, you know, who can forget, though? You, we don't want to forget the Robin Hood tree. You got to talk about the Robin Hood tree. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is about midway on the Hadrian's Wall path. It's it's going to be in that sort of the best preserved section of the wall. There's kind of like a big sort of dip in the ground. Uh, and the wall just goes down like a big, big bowl and it goes way back up. And right in the middle is this sycamore tree. It was made famous by the uh, early 1990s movie with Kevin Costner, Robin Hood. So everybody calls it the Robin Hood tree. They filmed a lot of scenes there. And it was really is one of my favorite parts of the wall. When you kind of you kind of walk back from it and just and see the, the tree in the, in the big dip there with the wall. And it, it made for some great photos of the group. When I read this, I wanted to go back and watch Robin Hood again. But I just I can't put myself through two hours of Kevin Costner's horrible British accent. <laughs> right. Well, you know, I, I probably would agree with you on that one. <laughs> so I think at this point, maybe we can go through sort of an itinerary and talk about whatever comes to mind for you of interesting things along the way. I know we've just, we've just talked about a lot of the key sites, but uh, maybe if we go through the itinerary a bit, it'll help people kind of have a context for where all this is. And so day one, it's bonus on Solway to Carlisle, as you mentioned, and that's 14 miles and that's 22 and a half kilometers. You know, I think I saw on your blog, there's this interesting sign near the beginning. What's the story on that? Uh, yeah, there's a guy as uh, groups are just, or people or groups are just setting off on the trail and he has this sign, interchangeable sign, and he's got cities from all over the world. And so he asks you where you're from and he goes into his like little garage and he digs out the sign and so, you know, I think I said, you know, Los Angeles. And so it said Los Angeles, whatever, thousands of miles. And so he puts the he puts that up on the post and then you stand under it and get your your photo. Nice. Nice. So, yeah. So he does it for free, but he holds his hand out for tips. But he's a great guy. A lot of fun. And that's his stick. And so how is that first day? You mentioned the tide issue. So that's interesting. Something I wouldn't have thought of. So you're along the coast a little bit before you start going inland. Uh, yeah, you're along the coast. It starts off, I believe it's Britain's third largest estuary okay. area. So, it, you know, it's kind of an interesting area visually. And then it's at that point where you could look across and see Scotland. And that was that's like the only place where you could actually see Scotland from across this sort of marshy plain that was there. That day, you, I do recall, so you walk along some paved road. Uh, as you're kind of getting going. And I, I do point out that Hadrian's Wall has uh, less paved road hiking than, say, the Camino de Santiago in Spain. So not a lot, but on day one, you get a fairly good fair share right right from the start. And this is a pretty flat day, pretty flat walking the first day? Yes, yeah, pretty flat day. Okay. And then you've got Carlisle with the castle, and then Carlisle to Lanarkos the second day. Yeah, so uh, yeah, so we ended day one in Carlisle. We, we checked out the castle. Got checked in, and we just stayed at a, a just a quaint little British inn. It was run by a husband and wife. Uh, it was nice. And then the next day, from Carlisle to Lanarkost is about twelve and a half miles for the hiking. We stayed in uh, Lanarkost at a place called the Abbey Farmhouse and the Abbey Farm Guesthouse, and it was it was really cool. Some older buildings you could tell were probably from maybe the seventeen hundreds, maybe into the eighteen hundreds. And they, you know, sort of converted them 
into sort of a bed and breakfast type of place uh, for small groups. And then the next day, day three, you're going Lanarkost to once brood. And this is where you first start to see the wall? Uh, yes. Yeah. The, the uh, second day from Lanarkost, you're going to start to see that wall. Finally, you start to see the uh, sections of it. And so, wow. So then, you know, yes, uh, here we are. We are in northern England. We are doing the Hadrian's Wall path. It is happening. And so I've got Lanarkost to once brood that that's about 14 miles or so. Uh, yeah, roughly, roughly. Yeah. Okay. And you've got sections of the wall. I see there's something I saw called, I'm going to say it wrong. I'm sure, but Bertoswald fort or something. I don't know if that's a Roman ruin or. That's one of the, uh, big forts that's along the wall. And that had a little museum as, as well to it. So that was a very large fort. And so it's cool. Again, it's mainly just the sort of the foundation the fort that you see and you can kind of walk around the ruins. And then you've got, I think the Roman army museum was that at the end of that day. Uh, the Roman army museum is that day. Yes. That is the one where I knew that there was like the last showing was at 4 PM of the movie. Uh-huh. We were just, just a little behind. So I had to kind of you know, play <laughs> sort of, you know, shepherd there. <laughs> I'm like, okay, we can do this guys. We can do this. It was a beautiful day from what I remember, but it was sort of an, a little bit of an uphill, not much. The path in general, the whole 84 miles, there's not a lot of elevation gain. But that was a day that was just a little bit uh, getting up to that museum. Yeah, but we you made, made it. it in time and you got in your 20-minute 3D experience. Movie. All right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and then you've got uh, at once brewed, you stayed at twice brewed from what you said. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yes, at once brewed, we stayed at twice brewed in. I believe they had some of their own sort of craft beer. There it was a cool little place. Uh, they had a, uh, a band that was kind of playing out in the patio that night. So it was real cool. It was real chill. And uh, we really enjoyed it. So how big are these towns along the way? Are these a few hundred people? Are some of them bigger, even smaller? Yeah, I would, I would probably say just a few hundred people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, so day four of walking, you're going from once brewed to, is it, Chollerford? Uh, Chollerford, correct. Uh-huh. Okay. And that's, I've got listed at about 12 miles or 19 and a half kilometers. Right. And what's, what is this day like? It's a pretty day. What I remember at the end uh, is there's this really, uh, where we stayed at a place called the uh, George Hotel. And uh, you're on the path and then you see the hotel across kind of this little river. And there's a, a like an ancient Roman bridge that you walk over to get over to the hotel. Oh, cool. So that was just a really great way to end the day. And this is the day with the uh, Sycamore Gap in the Robin Hood tree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to these little villages and you're staying at these small inns, are there locals at the at the pubs or is this mostly like a tourist inn when you're there? Or you get any interaction with the folks who live in the area? No, totally locals. Yeah, you're going to get a lot of cool uh, local interaction with, with, the, with the people of the community there. Cool. And then day five is Chollerford. And so this is one where you guys deviated, it looks like, from your plan. You had planned to do Chollerford to Hedden on the Wall, and then what, what ended up happening that, that day? Yeah, so the, uh, the accommodations are, there's not an abundance of accommodation on Hedden on the Wall. So, I mean, I did know ahead of time before we departed for the trip that there just wasn't enough rooms there for the group. So we just walked in, I believe it was an extra mile, maybe mile and a half along the wall path, continuing on our easterly bound route. Uh, I booked the group at a cool place called Keelman's Lodge. 
And they also had a cool little craft beer thing going on there, a good restaurant. It was a long day. You know, that add that extra mile and a half after already walking, you know, maybe 14 or so miles. You feel it, but the reward at the end, uh, the beer. Yeah, so I had your itinerary at 15 miles or 24 kilometers. Is that without the extra couple of miles? That would have been without. Yeah, so that's a, that's a long yeah. day. That's a long day, yep. Okay, but you, like you said, you get to some a nice place for a pint at the end of the day? Oh, yeah, yeah. I seem to always keep reverting back to that. Yeah, right. Well, you're in England, I guess, <laughs> going to English pubs. So there, you got it. Yeah, yeah. got to assimilate. Exactly. And then, so the last day, which would have been heading on the wall, but you were a little past that, is to Wall's End. And that would be 15 miles if it's from heading on the wall. So about 24 kilometers. And what is, the, what is the scenery? How is everything changing now that you're getting toward the eastern side of England? So, yeah. So this now you're going to start walking into more larger towns. It's going to get uh, much more urban as you're uh, getting closer to back into Newcastle, basically, where we flew into and stayed for that first night. Then you're kind of back on concrete again. And it's it's a nice walk. Uh, you're going to be on sort of a walking path along the river there that, that flows past Newcastle. Um, and so at that day, there's plenty of options for any kind of eating and snacking and stopping that, that you need. How's Newcastle? Uh, Newcastle, to be honest with you, we weren't really that impressed. With it. <laughs> it's, it's still the industrial north of England? Kind of. That's pretty much it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just kind of didn't seem to really gain any kind of luster at all. It didn't really seem to be able to reinvent itself. Okay. Well, good to know. And you mentioned, I think, earlier as we were talking this through that there was a couple of the places where you might want to have a layover day and see a museum or see a, a site. Um, just as a reminder, now that we've kind of gone through the six days, where where would you recommend people think about taking more time? Uh, so that would be, I would recommend taking an extra day once you're in in and around like once brewed and the Chollerford areas. So those were our destinations for the evening after walking. And mainly it's going to be pretty much felt like whatever direction you're going to be hiking, it's going to be like nights two, three, and four are going to be your best, probably nights three and four. Okay. The museums and the forts and everything are all, for the most part, centered around the most intact section of the wall, which is the mid section of the wall along the whole 84 mile route. Yeah. So why not spend a little bit extra time there? Spend some extra time there. Yeah. Just enjoy those museums. And if you, if you, you love history, you love learning. That's going to really be for you. So where does the trail actually end? Where is Wall's End? Where are you finishing? So Wall's End is it's a little bit. So then you're walking past east past Newcastle for a few more miles. And Wall's End, it's another uh, like fort area where there was a fort. So that was, you know, the, the start of the of, of what would have been the wall back then. Uh, there's no uh, section intact. But Wall's End does have sort of the foundations of the fort that was there. And uh, so they have a cool little gift shop and then they have sort of this like lookout tower. You can go up from the gift shop and just get a real nice bird's eye view of the fort looking down onto the foundations. Oh, cool. And then kind of seeing Carlisle uh, or Newcastle away in the background kind of things. So as you look back on this, why is this a trip people should think about doing? What's I mean, we've talked about the history and sort of the countryside and what sticks out for you is why this is a trip worth doing. I think because of the uh, the uh, the fact that it's a it is a multi day trek, but it can be for most fitness levels because it's there's not there's no real extreme elevation gain, and also you're just you're not up at eleven thousand feet like on the Inca Trail where you can barely breathe. It's all very you know I think you're only 
300 feet maybe above sea level or whatever it is over there. So yeah, so not too difficult. You've got the the rich history that's mixed in now with your with your hiking route, and you just got beautiful beautiful scenery. I it, you know the pictures of a lot of the uh, sort of the vistas as you're looking out from the path on all the undulating hills. It it just goes on and on and on, and the pictures just didn't do it justice. Sure, I remember. I remember one day, maybe it was around day three, just kind of turning around doing a 360, and it was just like flat. I could just see, you know, just for from miles and miles and miles and miles. It was just all beautiful green. So do you have a particular memory that sticks out for you for the whole trip? Like when you think back on this trip, is there a moment? Is it that moment you just described, or is there is there a moment that sticks out for you? Well, the, a couple moments, actually. So uh, one lesson I learned is to double-check on accommodations and see also if they have elevators because none of these places had elevators. And so a lot of times we were staying maybe on the second and third floor. And so we'd have our luggage transported for us. And, you know, we're international tourists out on a long trip. So yeah. we've got the big luggages. And so here, so I end up schlepping all the luggages up for all the gals. So I got that extra workout at the end of the day. I was honored to do it, but I have a new respect for the Bellman and hotels. Another funny day and a funny story was two of the gals there were some sheep running towards them <laughs> and they for some reason thought maybe they were uh, going to attack them <laughs> and so they're just trying to get their backpacks off to defend themselves but the sheep just ran right by them they were apparently just going to go see some other sheep family members or <laughs> <laughs> there was some grass to go eat on the other side yeah right yeah well, so what happened? I mean, you mentioned um, having to carry all the bags up every night. Were there, in general, were there things that happened that you didn't expect or things you would have done differently now that you've been on this trip if you were to do it again? I don't know about doing differently. I, did, I didn't bring a compass. And I think maybe on that first day, if I had a compass, um, I lost about a half hour time with the group as we were trying to kind of get back on the path, on the wall path. Because uh, again, there's not a section of the wall on that first day. So. Um, I got a little bit turned around. The guidebook wasn't specifically clear. Um, it wasn't a big deal, but a good trip leader should always have a compass. And uh, that was my lesson for that trip. Anything else we haven't talked about about the the trip that you want to tell us about? Or have we pretty much covered it? I think uh, we pretty much covered it. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's a lot of places up in that area where you can extend your trip. Um, I haven't been, but I've heard great things about the Lake District. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that too. Northern England, that's not too far from the area uh, where we were hiking along the pass, so that could be an option for like an extension tour. Okay, Jack, I appreciate you telling us about the trip, but while I have you, I've got a few more questions for you. Sure. All right, so what is the one hike or trip that you've done that others shouldn't miss out on? I would say for me, it's tied. It's tied between a couple. One of them is in January, so about a year ago, I had a group down and we were hiking in Patagonia, which is in uh, southern uh, South America in the southern part of Chile. And we were in a Torres del Paña National Park. And it was just absolutely stunning, stunning, stunning scenery. Just beautiful crystal blue lakes and blue icebergs and sections. Uh, it was just really beautiful. So that's kind of like a four-day classic trek you can do called the W. And you uh, stay a little bit more in sort of mixed dormitory accommodations, though. So it's probably not a good idea right now during uh, 
the uh, pandemic. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, but once that gets back, that's a uh, very highly recommended. So beautiful down there. That's good to hear because yeah. that one's on my short list. Um, I've been hoping oh, actually. Great. Yeah, I've been hoping to actually do that the end of this year if I can, but we'll see. Depends. Yeah. Uh, hopefully they'll uh, they'll get uh, everything back uh, open there. And then one of my most successful biggest largest group tours that I did was. I, I created this concept called Hike the Holy Land, and we went out to uh, to Israel. Oh, cool! And we did some mainly some day hiking, of course, seeing all the you know UNESCO World Heritage sites there. But we just did some fabulous hiking up in like the Galilee area up there, and then we uh, even went uh, over towards just outside of Jerusalem, which would be considered the West Bank. Uh, we did a trail there, which was just beautiful, just ancient. There were some ancient Roman terraces there and just lots, lots of fig and olive trees, all <laughs> very biblical looking. Sure. And then we went over to Jordan and we hiked around Petra in Southern Petra. And that's made famous by that, by the Indiana Jones movie with a, the, sort of that lost city built in yep. the side of the cliffs and the sandstone cliffs. And that was really cool. So this whole hike, the Holy land concept was a really cool, we did that in 2016. And that's one of my most memorable tours. I would call it more of an active tour and not like a track or anything. Sure. What's the next trip on your list? For for me personally or uh, Sure, yeah. Like what's what's your the one you really want to do even if it's so, not planned? <laughs> oh. Well, okay. either way, either well, way. I mean, so obviously this year I'm really kind of focused on the United States yeah. and uh in revisiting some national parks but exploring some some new national parks and you know what? We are fortunate to live here. The United States just has some of the best national parks in the world. I mean, we just have so much beauty here. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting out. And personally, I'm going to go want to go scout out Glacier National Park once the weather gets a, a little bit more comfortable for that. And then I, you know, I also discovered uh, doing a lot of research now and a little bit of downtime. There's this cool bike path. It's not a national park, but there's this cool bike path that goes from Key Largo to Key West. It's 90 miles. It's all flat. And again, you could do a luggage transport service, stay at little hotels along the way and just really slow down and see the keys up close and personal. So I'm like, you know what? That sounds pretty cool. I think I might go check that out. And I bet you I could get a group to do that. Yeah, that sounds great. What's the most unexpected thing that's ever happened to you while you were hiking or trekking? Ah, uh, wow. Yeah. So a, a really hard lesson I learned a couple summers ago, I, I put together a small group program called the Mighty Five in Utah, Hike the Mighty Five. And we did five of the national parks in southern Utah over uh, the course of like seven days, I think it was. Uh, so it was like Zion, Bryce, Capitol Reef, Arches, and Canyonland. So I had the group flying from, everybody was from different areas of the United States. So we said, let's fly into Vegas. And I'm going to, it was only like five of us. So I'm going to rent the big van and we're going to drive out, you know, out to Zion and get, you know, settled in and probably get maybe a, a late afternoon hike in. But I was just so excited getting the group there. It was either May or June. And, you know, it's about, a, I think, a two hour drive and the sun was beating down on me the whole time. And I wasn't really realizing that I was getting dehydrated on the, uh, on the ride out there. And then so we, you know, checked in real quick to the lodge and went out to hike a, I think Angel's Landing it was. And I had just been too preoccupied with a lot of the logistics of the of getting the group out there and getting them checked in on the trail that I wasn't, I just didn't hide it enough. And we got about halfway up and here's Jack, the tour leader, 
that now all of a sudden is looking at Susan and she, I'm seeing two of Susan. Oh, wow. <laughs> and then I'm like, I need to sit down and hydrate. And so the group's like pouring water over my head, but I had to take a good half hour and just sit there. So another lesson is just don't underestimate getting dehydrated, especially on any kind of summer hikes, wherever you are. It can happen. So keep drinking lots of fluids. Yeah, it can get serious fast. So I'm glad you were able to recognize what was happening. Sure can. Yep. So what's the worst, this is last question here. What's the worst weather you've ever experienced while you were outdoors and how'd you handle that? Well, I think, so two things. I think I had a group we did, uh, we hiked the four-day classic Inca Trail to Machu Picchu in Peru. But one of the days you're up at uh, around 11,000 feet. So it's not really the weather. It's just the lack of the oxygen. It was a real hard day. I was a little sick to my stomach. Um, you can't, you can take pills for that um, that kind of altitude, but I decided well, I was going to be tough and not do it. Probably, probably should have yeah. a little slow that day. But, uh, and then on, as I mentioned, one of my favorite hikes was down in Patagonia, that four day classic W trek. But there was one day on one section. Um, and I had read that this could happen, but we hit for about 30 minutes, wind gusts of roughly 50 miles an hour. Yikes. It was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. It was almost blowing people you know, off the trail. So we took that one very, very, very slow. I told everybody to just get a really, really wide stance. Uh, do we, we could just move like, you know, one inch at a time, but let's just be safe about that. So I have some really cool videos of that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Just don't let go of your camera or your phone. It's going to fly know, away. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I, I have to say, I'm grateful because of all the tours and all the treks and all the walking trips, I've really been blessed to have Pretty much very good weather on all of them. So I always think, uh, who is it? St. Christopher is it the, 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 uh, the saint of travel, I think. <laughs> that is, uh. Yeah, one of the great things when you're doing a week or two is you can try to plan around the best time of year to do it. <laughs> and you can avoid some of the worst weather that way. So, so Jack, where can people find you online? Where are the, what are the websites for Get Fit With Wit? It's just getfitwithwit.com and then also... Yeah, uh... Yeah, yeah, right. Get fit with wit. My last name is W I T T, getfitwithwit.com. And then my travel company website is activeworldjourneys.com. And there's some cool blog. I always do a blog article about all, all my trips too, whether they're solo or with the groups. Uh, so there's lots of cool blog articles on there. And people can uh, feel free to uh, you know, reach out to me for any logistics if they're plan- uh, trying to maybe plan on going with themselves or with the family. I'd be happy to help them with any information. Jack Witt, thanks for coming on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks again to Jack Witt for coming on the show. I hope you will check out his website for offerings for future adventure trips. That's Active World Journeys. Before we talk about our next episode... I want to remind you to check out Outdoor Herbivore, outdoorherbivore.com, for delicious backpacking meals that have plenty of calories and are in -in boil-in-the-bag packaging so that you can easily cook them just by adding hot water. There are lots of great options for different kinds of meals, and Outdoor Herbivore meals are made with really high-quality ingredients. All of the meals are vegetarian or vegan, but you don't have to be a vegetarian to love them. They are offering Trails Worth Hiking listeners a 10% discount on their order. To get that discount, enter the code TWH10P, Trails Worth Hiking 10%, to get 10% off your order. 
just to note, Outdoor Herbivore is not giving me anything in particular for referring customers to them, but I love their meals. I buy them for myself. And because they're offering a discount code, I thought I should tell you about it. So check out Outdoor Herbivore at OutdoorHerbivore.com. All right. So I hope Jack and I have inspired you to hike the Hadrian's Wall Path. Keep in mind that this podcast is entertainment and meant to spark your interest. If you decide to hike the trail, do your own research. Like anything else worth doing, outdoor adventure has risk. So when you go, pack your common sense. And when you get back, tell me how it went. Now a little preview of our next episode. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we go to the Riviera. It's always nice to go to the beach, right? But this isn't southern France. This is the Riviera of the Sierra, the Benson Riviera. Deep in a remote corner of the Sierra Nevada mountains at more than 7,000 feet up is Benson Lake. And unlike any other Sierra Nevada lake I've ever seen, Benson Lake has a phenomenal beach. In fact, it's so big you can camp right on the beach. Yep, beach camping in the middle of the mountains. You really have to see it to believe it. Next time on Trails Worth Hiking, we travel the Benson Lake Loop in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. If you have any questions or feedback on this episode, ideas for future episodes, including if you want to be a guest and talk about a trail that you've hiked that you think others should hear about, reach out to me at trailsworthhiking at gmail.com. So start planning your next hike. And before you know it, you'll be on the trail. Thanks for listening. <music>